welcome to the Digital Workplace Deep Dive. I'm your host, Weston Morris. This is part two of our deep dive into natural language processing. And if you missed part one, you may want to pause here and catch up on the previous episode because in part one, we looked at three ways that we're using natural language processing to provide a better experience when you call the service desk for help. We also walk through the steps required to train artificial intelligence to recognize human speech. And we closed out the last podcast with a look at the future of AI and what combination of technologies are required to get to a true conversational speech. So welcome now to the second episode and I'll let my guest introduce himself. Sure, yeah, so uh, my name is Brian Everts. I'm a lead data scientist with Unisys. Well, Brian, it's great to have you back again. In part two of our series on natural language processing, we hope to dig into some of the challenges that you face as a data scientist and maybe some of the shortcuts that can be taken in training AI. Uh, I think we'd also like to talk about dealing with different languages and uh, we might even dig into the difference between supervised and unsupervised learning. So welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thanks, Weston. Happy to be here. What are some of the challenges you run into in, in doing your job in performing natural language processing, being a data scientist? I'd, I'd say there's probably the top three things are data quality, data quality, and data quality. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I mean, for, for any data scientist, I think those are the top things. Um, and we're seeing this kind of across the board, not just in natural language processing, but, you know, traditional data science. Um, you know, data quality is a huge issue. I mean, I think the kind of public perception is that AI is just magic. Machine learning is just magic. We just, you know, we take a whole bunch of data and we throw it into an algorithm and we get an answer. Well, you know, that's true. We, we do get an answer. It may not be the right answer, but, but it's an answer, right? <laughs> so, I, you know, I think really getting that good quality data where all the issues that you care about are represented in that data set and, and they're represented kind of uniformly. Oftentimes what we see is things like password reset. That may be like the dominating intent in the data set. You may have like, you know, 40,000 rows of data that are password reset. And then for other things like VPN, you might have like a really small, maybe less than a thousand, depending on, on the, how long a period uh, that you're covering with your data set. I mean, typically with customers, we're seeing it takes money to save that data and to store it. So not all customers are, are saving that historical data, or maybe they're not going back very far. So, you know, we're seeing we can go back you know, maybe a year sometimes with customers and, and get that, that data. Um, but going much further back than that, uh, oftentimes the data is very sparse or, you know, over time they've added new data points to it or changed it. So it's just really challenging to get that really good quality data that we can train our algorithms on. Are there any shortcuts that you're able to take? Because this sounds complicated and, and very labor intensive. And the whole point is to reduce labor long term. That's why we do this. Uh, sure. There's, there's some things we can do. I mean, obviously there, there's data synthesis algorithms, so we can look to do that, but in some ways that's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of cheating. I mean, we really wanna see um, you know, live data, right? So we wanna see real issues that a customer is having so that we can train our models to do the tasks that are needed to optimize their help desk. Um, another thing we can do is we can look at combining the, what's called a pre-trained word vector model. We can take that as our starting point, and then we can retrain that or combine that with a smaller data set from a customer that's maybe more specific. So, you know, for example, the, the glove word vectors are trained on the Wikipedia data set. That contains everything. 
I mean, it contains things like Microsoft um, products and Microsoft terms, uh, but it also contains things like, um, you know, the U.S. Constitution or um, physics terms. Pop culture, music, yeah. Exa exactly. It's, it's like everything, right? So, you know, we take that as our starting point. We can then do, you know, what's called, um, you know, transfer learning, uh, and we can, you know, retrain that model on a more specific data set from our customer. And, and that's one of the things we've been doing to kind of help us kind of jumpstart the, you know, the modeling process, if you will. Uh, other things we can do is, you know, one of the advantages um, that Unisys has is, is we have many customers, right? So what we can do is we can start looking at securely uh, combining customers' data together after being anonymized, obviously. And then we can look at patterns across those combined data sets. You know, maybe one customer might have only, um, you know, a couple months of data or one year of data. Another customer might have a year. So when you combine all of that, you know, you may get several years worth of, of data, which, which is great. Um, the challenges there, though, with, with that approach are uh, oftentimes customers have different products. I mean, most of the world, I would say, is, you know, Microsoft-centric, if you will. Uh, some customers have Mac OS X as well. But within that, you know, the VPN was a, a good example that I gave previously. So some people might refer to their VPN as, as VPN. Uh, other people might refer to it as uh, Pulse Secure, the, the name of the product, uh, or NetConnect, or Unisys Connect, right? So there's, there's different ways customers refer to, to VPN. And so some of that stuff gets washed out in, in the sheer numbers if we combine too many different data sets together. Yeah, I could think of one, one example that's especially interesting is uh, one, one of our customers, their password reset portal and tool is called One. So you can just see people calling in and say, I've got, I've got one problem. And if we didn't do any training. <laughs> it's uh, like who's on first, right? No, I said, what's your problem? <laughs> yeah, a problem with one what? <laughs> so obviously additional training is needed in addition to what you can take advantage of from common understanding of, of a very obvious phrase, I need to reset my password. Yeah. Now that's making me wonder about a related problem. So you're talking about here how you can take advantage of shared knowledge across enterprises or, or industries, but what about across languages? You know, some of our customers require us to provide services to them in, a, you know, 20 or more languages. They're very international, very global. So obviously I'm thinking about all of this in terms of English. Uh, what about Spanish, Portuguese, Mandarin, Hindi? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So a lot of the word vector models, they don't exist in every language. Mm -hmm. They're starting to, they're, you know, get retrained and, and published in different languages. But uh, yeah, that, that is an interesting problem. Uh, and it's one that, that, you know, we're currently working on solving. Um, so there, there's, you know, traditional ways of translating, right? Machine translation, you know, oftentimes that, that, that works where, you know, those algorithms are getting much better than they were. So that, that's one approach. But again, you know, things can definitely get lost in translation. I mean, ideally, we want to be able to train our models on a full data set in a given language. And again, it comes back to, you know, again, two things, the availability of the pre-trained word models in a given language and just the availability of our data set to train on in that language. Right? Back again to data quality and, and quantity. And I could see where idiom in language really would create a problem, too. I mean, I yeah. just think of an example. Uh, between English and, and Brazilian Portuguese, uh, you know, somebody speaking English might say, uh, when they when they finally understand something, uh, they might say, oh, yeah, yeah, it finally dawned on me. It dawned on me. You know, where does that come from? Sun coming up something? Uh, in Brazil, they might say, uh, finalmente caiu a ficha. You know, finally the token fell. Uh, wh where does that come from? You know, it actually comes from their use of 
tokens in the phone booths and making a connection. But how, how do you translate that? How do you make an understanding between the literal words versus the, you know, what the idiom, what the, what the phrase actually means, you know, to, to someone when they're hearing it in that, in that native language? It seems like that creates a whole set of problems. Exactly. And, you know, Weston, I didn't know that you spoke Portuguese. So now that I know you do, uh, when it comes time to do our Portuguese version, you know, I'm, I'm going to be calling you up. <laughs> <laughs> so the things you described earlier about, uh, you know, taking a base language set, a model, and then getting domain specific utterances, um, you know, married in with that. Do you go through that exact same process when going to another language? Or do you, is there anything that you benefit from in the initial language? So let's say if I'm starting with English, do I gain nothing in going to, let's say, Spanish? So I think, you know, we gain the knowledge of which algorithms work better for specific types of problems. You know, I, th I think that general knowledge kind of transfers. Uh, I think in general, also people like Windows is called Windows all over the world. Yeah. Like there's certain product names that are just kind of common. So you have that list of entities and products that, that we can draw on. Uh, but then it's it's looking at the relationship between how they're used and, and you know, how that would translate into a, an actual request for help on resolving an issue. So what I'm hearing is it's it's not starting from scratch per se, but it is that same process of of getting your, you know, tons of data and good quality data in that language. You have to do that. You can't skip that step. Exactly. There's a couple of different approaches, you know, as I mentioned before. You have the supervised machine learning approach and, and the unsupervised approach, right? So the, what you want to have as a data scientist, as I mentioned, you want to have that label data set, right? Um, lots of data, lots of really, you know, good quality data uh, that's labeled to train your algorithms. But again, you know, if we don't, there's, there's again, ways we can work around that with some unsupervised machine learning algorithms. Um, they may not be as accurate. They may, they may not perform as well from the get-go, but it's better than nothing, right? As, as you work to build up that data set, right? at least you have a starting point. Would you mind walking us through an example of how supervised learning is different from unsupervised? Sure. So supervised learning, it basically means that, you know, you have the answer, right? So it means that I have a labeled data set. I have an utterance that says I can't log into my VPN. That's my model input. And then I have the, the target, the label, which is, um, you know, my resolver group. For example, the network team. Um, so I take that data set of all those utterances with their label, uh, and I, I run that through a machine learning algorithm, uh, which trains that algorithm, uh, basically um, parameterizes it, and it finds the right weights so that it can properly predict the answer on that data set. All right, so that, that's a supervised approach. And that's, that's what uh, every data scientist loves to have because there's so many algorithms out there to, to help us solve those types of problems. But say we don't have a label data set. Say we, we don't know, we, um, what's the resolver group for? I can't log into my VPN. So with the unsupervised learning algorithms, um, we don't have the answer, right? But we do have um, a bunch of data points about, uh, about tickets or other objects, and, and we can look at grouping them according to similarity across those, those different data points. So for example, say I have a, a group of tickets, um, and I'm interested in what are the, what are the main words, what are the keywords um, in that ticket? Does it contain the word VPN? Does it contain the, the word network? What's the location that that ticket's coming from? Or what's the user that opened that ticket, right? What AD group are they in? What, are they in R&D or are they, uh, for example, in HR, 
right? All of these are different data points that we can put into a machine learning algorithm. And what that translates into is, you know, maybe people in the R&D team, they use a different set of applications and, you know, their tickets go to this certain set of resolver groups versus in HR, maybe they use, you know, their HR apps at SAP or certain different CRM apps. So then their, their help desk tickets would go to a different group, right? So we can, we can cluster um, those tickets based on the different data points and kind of get these groupings, right? And, and the hypothesis is that similar tickets most likely get resolved by the same resolver group. Uh, are we using both supervised and unsupervised in, in our training today for IntelliServe? So, so right now we're using mostly supervised algorithms, but we're, we're also working on building out some unsupervised, like some clustering, some probabilistic graph type algorithms, et, et cetera. So um, in the near future, we are going to have both. What would be some of the problems we would be solving through unsupervised? Uh, so that back to the same problem, you know, data quality, data quantity. I mean, that, that's one of the biggest problems. So when you're training a neural network, for example, um, you know, typically you need half a million to a million rows of data to get decent answers, right? Unless you're using like a pre-trained model like a BERT or an ELMO. And even then, you know, you still need to have quite a bit of data, especially since we have so many different resolver groups, right? We have so many different, you know, each customer could have 30, 40, 50 different queues that tickets get sent to. So we need a lot of data, right? So the, the main problem that these unsupervised algorithms can help us with is they can give us not quite as accurate as a well-trained supervised learning algorithm, but they can still give us relatively good accuracy in telling us, you know, what's the most probable uh, resolver group or what's the most probable resolution to this issue. In the last podcast, uh, you talked a little bit about the difference between a basic chatbot and true conversational AI. And if I remember correctly, you mentioned that a chatbot uses a simple transaction table where it maps keywords to single answers. Whereas conversational AI requires a data structure that is a little bit more like the human brain, something like a vector graph that might have multiple connections letting you go in different directions depending on what the user says. Now it sounds like having supervised training is another important aspect of providing conversational AI in the IntelliServe platform. Exactly, yeah, so the, you know, a lot of those chatbots, as you said, they are transactional. I mean, they're programmed to do pattern matching. So when they hear the word order, uh, they're waiting to hear other words. They're waiting to hear what you want to order, for example. So it's, it's very kind of static, if you will. You know, whereas what we're aiming for is much more dynamic. And that is a great point, I think, to close out this podcast, that point on dynamic conversational ability, because that is what our users are increasingly expecting when they interact with AI. Thank you, Brian. Well, that wraps up part two of our series on natural language processing. Before we close, I need to reveal to our audience that my guest, Brian Everts, is in fact a robot. Thank you for joining us, Brian. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Brian Everts is a real person, a data scientist who we would be in big trouble without. Thank you so much for all the work you do and for explaining to us a little bit about how natural language processing is an important part of artificial intelligence in our IntelliServe platform. Oh, my pleasure, Weston. It's uh, great to be here and, and uh, have the opportunity to explain natural language processing to everybody. So that brings to a close this episode of our Digital Workplace Deep Dive podcast. I'm your host, Weston Morris. Thanks for listening.